Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome back Peter Kelly Detweiler. Peter Kelly Detweiler has 30 years of experience in the electric energy arena. He writes for Forbes.com and other publications on topics related to disruptive innovation and its impact on the electricity infrastructure. He provides strategic advice to clients and investors, helping them to navigate this transitional period. Peter is also the author of The Energy Switch, a book about how companies are transforming the electrical grid and the future of power. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to have a chance to chat with you again. Likewise, Peter, you know, the last time we saw each other, we were sharing a stage, I believe it was in September, at the Cleantech event. Yeah, that's right. That was a lot of fun. And I have to public, publicly admit, you know, I've been a fan of your work since 2019. The first time I saw you present, it was a virtual Cleantech event, fall of 2019, and it was such a like a personal pleasure to actually share the stage with you. Yeah, you know what I loved about that Clean Tech event was just how much laughter took place during what can be a very dry energy conversation. So I just, I walked away from that just delighted by that particular energy community in Texas that I had an opportunity to engage with that uh, over that uh, event. It was, really it, was a, fun. it was a really fun conversation. It was interesting to see some of the traditional, you know, fossil fuel representative in the room peeking around the corner, kind of, you know, trying to engage and seeing how we can perhaps, you know, meet halfway regarding this conversation we're having. Yeah, finding that common ground. That's going to be critically important. I agree. So speaking of common ground, while while it might not be common ground, I'd like to kick off the conversation with, let's say, the beginning of the year, Q1. You know, we had Russia and Ukraine, which is still going on today. But what do you think are some of the lessons that we can come away with from a national perspective, you know, regarding energy and energy situations and national security? You know, big picture, the first thing it reminds me of uh, that whole thing is we've been talking for a long time about how Europe had uh, a, a, a too dominant reliance on Russian hydrocarbons, both oil, but particularly natural gas. And we'd already seen the issues where, you know, they'd cut gas to Europe that was flowing into uh, cut gas to Ukraine that otherwise would have flowed into Europe a couple of years ago when tensions increased. And so it's one of these things where it almost was like willful ignorance geopolitically. Like, let's go ahead. Let's let's get Nord, Nord Stream 2 going and cross our fingers and hope for the best. And, you know, one of the things I think people and policymakers consistently do, unfortunately, over time is this failure of imagination which was the, the phrase used for 9-11. It's the phrase used almost every time there's some large failure of 
you know, complex systems, et cetera. And that is the ability to imagine what can go bad and then start to take some steps to protect oneself against that. Of course, climate change is the biggest potential failure of imagination scenario we face these days. But that one in, in Europe was so obviously manifest and then did manifest itself once hostilities commenced in February of this year. What's come out of that that's so fascinating is, um, first of all, a clarity of where Russia sits geopolitically and the weapon that it does have with respect to hydrocarbons and exports and the ability to fund the war, but also this new realignment of international gas trade in the form of LNG. And it's actually coming home to roost. I just looked at my electric bill this morning. I'm paying 33 cents a kilowatt hour this month which is Hawaii-type prices here in Massachusetts. And we've seen prices in multiple areas across the country increase. And part of that, Raj, is because we now have, since 2016 in this country, a, a an actual physical liquid market for gas. You know, it used to be that all our gas was basically uh, transported and traded between Mexico and Canada, but it was landlocked into North America. So we didn't have a global gas price. Once we started exporting in 2016 and then increasing volumes and then all this accelerated by the steroidal impact of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the gases, you know, gas not coming to Europe and so on. Now we have this significant global demand for our natural gas and we have increasingly the capability to export it. So, for example, in the first 10 months of 2022, our LNG exports jumped 11 percent with the majority of that. You know, 150% increase over to Europe. So now we have a situation where we produce about 100 billion cubic feet per day in October, November. New production records, 11.1 billion cubic feet, so 11% right now exported. That's going to go up to about 16% in the next three or four years as three more LNG facilities come online. So we're going to actually, that's going to add another 5.7 BCF per day. So that's 16, almost 17%. That has an impact on domestic gas prices, which in turn has a knock-on effect on power prices because natural gas is the fuel that drives pricing at the margin in all of our competitive markets. So that conflict overseas has a very direct impact on what we pay for our natural gas and for our electricity today from a self-interested perspective, let alone all the other horrendous things that are happening in the geopolitical instability. You know, it's interesting you start off by saying, and I, I may be paraphrasing, but short-sightedness. In 2010, I think it was January or February, I was involved in an organization here in Dallas called the World Affairs Council. And I believe it was early in the year, we had this beautiful lunch at a place here called Thanksgiving Tower. It was a lovely sit-down lunch. And we were going to have a live broadcast from none other than Mr. Gaddafi from Libya. Hmm. And during that live broadcast, Gaddafi was essentially extending an olive branch and saying, look, we don't want Europe to be over a barrel, pun intended, with Russia from a gas situation. So we in Libya want to start producing natural gas and shipping it to Europe. So it's interesting, you know, we fast forward here 12 years or so, and he was saying that back in 2010, then subsequently the Arab Spring happened and everything went sideways. But the fact that 
people on the ground knew that might be a risk way back then and didn't do anything about it. Yeah, in fact, doubled down with Nord Stream 2, which almost became a reality, you know? So, you know, I think, I think humans are remarkably short-sighted. Now, you know, you mentioned knock-on effects, and we'll get to the knock-on effects here in statewide, but we've seen Germany and other countries in Europe perhaps changing their commitments regarding renewables and coals and fossil fuels. What are your thoughts regarding that? Yeah, to me, that's a, a short-term strategic response to the peril of you know, going cold this winter and next. Um, I think the long-term understanding is that the climate change specter doesn't go away. But in the meantime, there is that criticality of keeping lights on. You can't, you can't sort of rip aside a whole portion of your energy economy without having to take some rather dramatic measures, some of which are not conducive to fighting climate change. I think so. You know, you do see these articles about Germans increasing coal consumption and so on. But still at the same time, they're forging ahead with more offshore wind development, as is, you know, the rest of Europe and moving into hydrogen and so on and so forth. So I think this is a short-term perturbation. Longer term and bigger picture, you see the International Energy Agency actually saying because of the conflict, um, the there's an accelerated global development of renewables because more people want to have control over domestic production of energy. And wind and solar are the consummate domestic sources of energy. So they actually see this big picture as accelerating the energy transition rather than, you know, focusing on this short-term sort of malignancy, if you will, around what's going on with the European energy picture for the next year or two or three. I would also add to that, there's been some confusion. And what I mean by that is that, you know, COP26 happened and the European countries and the Western countries were asking Africa to curtail some of their fossil fuel investments or research. And I exchanged emails with a gentleman from the UN actually earlier this year, maybe mid-year, regarding some of the change in tone regarding specifically Europe now asking African countries to double down on their fossil fuels because they, you know, again, want to escape the reliance from Russia and other countries. Yeah. And the U.S. actually pushing Venezuela potentially to increase more oil production. I, you know, there's this sort of, well, there is this issue of real politique. What stands right in front of you in the reality of that situation, which sometimes one has to embrace out of sheer pragmatism. I think you know, longer term, we have to keep our eye on the ball of what does this mean? And talk about common ground. We all live on the common ground, which is this tiny blue marble that hurdles through space. Right? Ultimately, that's the, the game, the set and the match of whether or not human planetary existence is something that's relatively comfortable and feasible or something that becomes increasingly painful over time. So I, I tend to view these things optimistically these days and that I think there are short-term responses to this rather critical event that's taking place. But I think long-term we'll revert back to the strategies that focus on, on sustainability because ultimately we have no choice. And I used to be rather pessimistic about this, Raj, but in the last couple of years with the, with the accelerated technologies and business models and adoption rates and then things like the IRA, I feel like, you know, maybe there is a chance that humanity will try, will actually succeed at figuring out how to keep temperatures below, say, two degrees centigrade rise, even with these issues that we're facing today. So coming back stateside, you mentioned, you know, 33 cents per kilowatt hour. 
my wife just yesterday said, hey, you know, our this is what she said. She said, our electric bill has doubled in the last two months. And I said, has now we have combined billing gas and electric. And I said, has the electric bill doubled or has the bill doubled? And she's clarified that the bill doubled. I said, probably because we had a cold month last month and then we had the heater on. So gas prices have gone up significantly. You know, you mentioned this 33 cents a kilowatt hour. I was on the phone last week with a, an EV expert. He's been in the EV industry many, many years, helped school bus companies, you know, institute electric school buses, et cetera. And so I asked him, I said, what is the price point per kilowatt hour when perhaps small fleet operators may refrain from converting to an electric fleet and stay with their current, you know, perhaps ICE engines or look for some other solutions? And the number he gave me was it would have to get to about 40 cents a kilowatt hour to where it won't make sense anymore. And it sounds like we're pretty close there. Well, of course, you got the question of what's your what's your gasoline price at the same time or diesel because they don't especially I mean diesel is super expensive right now because of issues around refining scarcities and so on. So you kind of have to look at that whole thing in terms of what economists call cross price elasticities. What's the price of this commodity versus the one that that is being replaced? And the, the two of them often tend to move in tandem, especially gas and oil. You know where they're often co-produced. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think um, I think if you see electricity prices going to, say, 40 cents, you're probably also going to see mm, gasoline prices relatively higher because of inflationary pressures and hydrocarbon pressures and so on. So I don't worry so much that electricity prices are going to force people away from EVs, but I do think they there is definitely a decrease right now in the delta and savings that one saw Mm, say six months ago. Speaking of EVs, how are you enjoying your Hyundai Iconic? I, I love it. I mean, the thing is, <laughs> we have, we actually have some telematics, you know, where people, where the insurance company can track what we're doing. And we do get a notification that we accelerate too quickly. And why? <laughs> because it's just a joy to hit the, the theoretical, you know, gas pedal and jackrabbit off the start. Or the other time, I, I find myself speeding, and particularly when I'm going into corners, because the battery weight means you have a really low center of gravity. Mm-hmm. So accelerating into curves is awesome. The only real downside right now with mine is the range, and that's impeded by air conditioning and heating, because today's EVs don't have heat pumps for that, and they will in the future. Today, heating or cooling the cabin draws on the battery, and you know, in a regular ICE, it's the waste heat that warms the cabin in the winter. That tells you how inefficient an ICE is, right? That the waste heat can warm your car. And of course, in the summertime, you're using a compressor for your AC. So, And just to remind people of how you came across this car, I think you bought it from seeing it on an airplane magazine. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. So what happened was we had 102 mile an hour blow. It wasn't a hurricane, but it knocked out. A tree landed on one of our Priuses. And I got, and so we had to replace it. My wife and I were talking about what we're going to do. Next week, after the car was smashed, I'm flying down with her to a conference in New Orleans on JetBlue. And on the screen is an ad for Honda Ionic. For, it was supposed to be 1000 thousand seventy nine a month, but I wasn't ex-military or new college grad. Got out of the plane, got into the Uber, immediately started calling dealerships in Massachusetts where I live. First five of them drew a blank on every one. 
The sixth one had 11. They were taking in from a bankrupt dealership that they had relationship with. They said, you want to come in for a test drive? I said, nope. I want to take my credit card. I'm leasing that car sight unseen. And so I did. And now the family members, you know, we do have the, the Prius and we do have the the Honda Ionic, and whenever anyone can, they always get the Ionic because they like driving it so much. It's a beautiful little car, and like you mentioned, the center of gravity and the EVs do make it a little bit tempting as you go into the corners. Oh, yeah. And you know, one other thing, we charge that vehicle. It has that emergency charger that you use when you go places for the 110 volt. That's our go-to. I've probably only charged my wife and I maybe a dozen, maybe 15 times at level two chargers someplace. We just trickle charge from the home. And Fantastic. just with an extension cord and that little ersatz charging thing that comes with the car. And, and it's worked fine outdoors, too. We don't even have a garage. And we live in New England. So sometimes I have to scrape the ice off when I unplug it in the morning, <laughs> but it works. That's fantastic. Now, switching gears, pun intended again, you know, you touched on the IRA. Great that it passed this, you know, fall. What are some of the pros and cons, broadly speaking? Yeah, I think, first of all, it's heartening to see that for the first time in decades, America has an industrial policy. Um, China, for example, has had its five-year policies for forever, and it's no accident that they produce you know, 80-plus percent of the world's solar panels, and one company, Contemporary Amperex, does 34% of lithium-ion batteries because they deliberately finance those industries with low-cost financing and helped set up supply chain and so on, and created also domestic uh, markets. So, for example, China will install this year maybe 80,000 megawatts of solar just this year, and the U.S. cumulatively is at 130,000. That So now the U.S. now comes in with about $369 billion worth of subsidies, incentives for an industrial policy for more solar, wind, a standalone investment tax credit for batteries for the first time, um, significant incentives for EVs where they took away the the old um, incentive was capped after an automaker sold 200,000 vehicles, which is kind of dumb, but that's what it was. Now, basically, they have incentives that are based upon domestic content and also income, which I think is good. Like if you make over $300,000 as a combined household, you don't have access to the EV incentive. Um, they they also have incentives for used vehicles for the first time with people at below certain income thresholds. So I think there's a lot of good stuff that's going to drive EV adoption. And that domestic content piece, by the way, is driving a lot of Asian companies to put gigafactories in the United States, including Vietnamese company VinFast. And, you know, Samsung and SK Innovations tying in with GM or Ford, et cetera. And so you're starting to see a whole lot of uh, manufacturing base coming back to the United States to support this burgeoning EV uh, population. And, and Bloomberg did an analysis recently that said once you hit the 5% sales threshold, it doesn't take long to get to 25% of new cars being electric. They looked at 18 countries and looked at those S-curves and said the U.S. is right there. And we're probably 25% of all new vehicles sold or electric by 2025. So three years from now. And I think the, the IRA helps a lot in that area and creates more jobs and employment rather than exporting all that stuff overseas. I like also what it's doing in the area of renewables, although... 
solar and wind arguably had gotten so successful that I think you could have winnowed down those incentives and had them decline over time after certain targets were met. As an economist by training, I don't like inefficient subsidies where you're giving away too much surplus, for example, to a developer or an installer dead weight loss, if you will, that you didn't necessarily need to give an entity in order to do what you want them to do. So I think in certain areas, these incentives are crude and 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 we could have driven more behavior for the same buck if we were smarter about it. And then on the hydrogen one, there's $8 billion, well, $9.5 billion, but about $8 billion for hydrogen hubs, six to 10 of them built around the country. I think we're going to see pretty significant acceleration around the hydrogen space as well, which just to be clear, it's not a fuel, it's an energy carrier. H2 is just simply like a very large battery with some very significant inefficiencies inherent into it. And by that, I mean, for example, if you have a fuel cell vehicle Raj and an electric vehicle, you take a hundred units of energy and you put it into a battery, 90% of that gets used for traction in the vehicle or you know, to heat the cabin, et cetera. Take a fuel cell vehicle, start upstream with 100 units of energy, turn it into hydrogen through electrolyzers, compress it or liquefy it, and then store it, and then put it into a fuel cell, which then goes to an electric engine in that car and ultimately drives the vehicle. You lose more than two thirds of the energy in that equation. So while hydrogen is, is going to be helpful in some areas, it has, because of the physics of it, some real downsides, and we have to be thoughtful about where we're going to subsidize hydrogen and what, where we get the biggest bang for the buck. The end goal is C, C, C. It's carbon, carbon, carbon. That's what we care about. And so what we really need to do is focus our lens on how much carbon are we driving out of our economy for every dollar invested. And I, you could probably make an argument that hydrogen is going to be less efficient in that in many sectors. And so we should focus on those areas that are hard to abate, hard to address, like fertilizer, like chemical processing, areas like that where hydrogen already is being manufactured and used in this country. And green hydrogen could be that drop in fuel to avoid carbon there. So, But we really have to be thoughtful about where we're going to focus this and why, or we run the risk of some wasteful policies. So I agree with you regarding the bill being a manufacturing revival bill some saber rattling coming out of Europe regarding the bill being too protectionist. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think they're legitimately concerned, and they should be. And uh, when Biden was with Macron, what, a week or a week and a half ago, he said, we can make some tweaks to it. Now, uh, it's easy for a president to say that harder legislatively <laughs> to get that accomplished. But I think, you know, nobody intended to freeze Europe out of that equation. Um, and, and yet that is, we, we've had the uh, effect of so doing. And, I, and I, the last thing we want to do is sort of is to ignite a trade war between ourselves and the EU at a time when the economy is somewhat delicately poised. So I think whatever we can do to rectify some of those issues, we'd probably <laughs> be well advised to do so. And you mentioned that, you know, the factories being promised here, you mentioned VinFast. By the way, for those that haven't heard of VinFast, I had a friend who actually went to Vietnam and drove one of their cars and said it was amazing. So if you're a fan of cars, Look up VinFast. In fact, look up Sandy Monroe and VinFast. You'll see some really interesting in him. Oh, because he does the teardown. Well, interestingly enough, the first Sorry, shipment of 999 of them went on to a, a freighter um, in the last week of November and will be in the U.S. market by the last week of this month. Why not 1,000? Why do they do 999? I have no idea. 
But anyway, Americans will be driving Vietnamese cars within the next 30 days. And if you'd have told somebody in 1975, when I was alive at the end of the Vietnam War, that this is where we would be in the future, you would have just sort of scratched your head and said, hmm, but here we are. Well, if you go back to the 50s, you wouldn't have thought we had Korean cars either. Yeah, true that. <laughs> and, now, and now, what are you driving? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So back to the manufacturing side, you know, we already have a, and I'm going to say these words, labor shortage, skilled labor shortage. Yeah. How do you think we go about addressing some of the labor issues as we start bringing this manufacturing back onshore and nearshore? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of apprentice programs, but when I was an exchange student in Germany in 1978-79, the house I lived in was attached to a gear factory, and half the people working in the factory were apprentices that got their learning hands-on. And there were some community colleges in this country where you, where they actually, there's one in uh, one of the Carolinas, I think, North Carolina, where they have a transformer on site, utility industrial scale transformer. And the students pay like $10,000 a year for tuition. And when they graduate, they're getting jobs paying in the 70s or 80s versus people going to Harvard and, you know, paying 80 grand for a year and then coming out. And I'm, I'm look, I'm a, I'm a liberal arts college grad, so I'm, I'm not belittling that. But a lot of this stuff is hard, blue-collar skill requirement. And I think what we need to recognize is that good-paying jobs, those middle-class jobs that used to be in the automobile industry, they're actually critical to our democracy, to the health of an informed electorate. When people make a little more money, they're less desperate, they have more time to educate, and so on. So I think what we really have to understand is what these future job requirements are going to be. And wind technology technician has been one of the fastest growing ones for the last five years in this country. And figuring out how do we reorient our educational systems accordingly, um, both in schools, you know, community colleges, et cetera. But I think there's also a bigger role for the private sector. I think many more of these large renewable industrial companies would be well advised to strengthen their ties with institutions and or create more internship, apprenticeship type programs to, in fact, create the value they ultimately need to harvest. So I strongly agree with you. I think we need a mental mind shift. And I'll tell you the experiences I've had here locally. When I've spoken to economic development individuals in certain cities, they try to take the message to high schools to encourage perhaps, you know, second generation um students to go to trade school. And the argument they get back from parents is, would you tell your children not to go to college or to go to trade school? And I think I think you hit upon it earlier. I'm a liberal arts guy too myself. And I think there needs to be a, a top-down push, mental reevaluation of what is college for and who needs to go to college. I agree. And, and, and we're seeing some of that with all these student loans, you know, worth, what, hundreds of billions of dollars of unpaid student loans. It's one of the most significant sore spots in the economy right now. That's misallocated capital as an economist, and it's misallocated human capital where people probably educated themselves in the wrong things that weren't marketable versus, you know, if you can climb a tower right now, a, a turbine tower, and fix stuff, you got a pretty good job. You know, I've spoken to several people at our company a couple of years ago, and I think they were saying, you know, a good welder, $150,000, $200,000 a year. Yeah. So switching gears again, you know, I kind of mentioned COP27 earlier. 
what are your thoughts of the decisions and um, I guess results of COP27? You know, I, I thought it was interesting that they, we started talking more about reparations to, you know, countries that haven't gone through an industrial revolution and are still suffering the consequences. It's one of those sad ironies that many of the um, least developed countries are the ones that are going to take it on the chin because they don't have air conditioning, they don't have they don't have the capital to buffer the impacts of an increasingly severe climate, uh, and so you know. And meanwhile, you and I are talking to each other by virtue of the fact that we're in comfortable offices with high tech and that sort of thing, and we've been building on that for decades now, centuries, by burning hydrocarbons and climbing up to the top of that hydrocarbon pile, which developing countries will not have that opportunity. And so the question is, how do we how do we deal with that from an equitable standpoint? Of course, there's going to be a lot of political pushback from some people, and I understand that. Um, so then, then I think you, you say, okay, well, maybe um, there is a certain amount of capital that you allocate. It'll never be enough to compensate for all the damage. Probably just wouldn't be. But the real question to me is, how do you help move those countries out of energy poverty? Because if you can move people out of energy poverty, then you have opportunities for education. And when you have opportunities for education, guess what else happens? Women can get educated. And then guess what happens? Birth rates decline, which means families have more capital discretionary income available to them. So actually, energy poverty sits right at the nexus of education, poverty, overpopulation, all these things. So I think just throwing money at the problem, probably not the best way to do it. Thinking again strategically about where those investments can and should be made, a better one. The other thing that was interesting about COP, there was a great economist headline saying, what is the fossil fuel industry doing at COP27? Is the headline from November 17th. And the subtitle was, its representatives are mainly shilling gas. And there were many hydrocarbon companies saying, oh, gas is a solution to climate change. Well, we know that gas is about half the carbon intensity of coal, but it is, it is certainly not the solution to the climate challenge. You know, it's kind of like heroin's awful, methadone's not so great either, <laughs> right? And they, according to one campaigning group, there are at least three, 636 lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry there, and also the chief executives of BP and Total now, and Shell and others. Now, some of those companies, Total, BP has BP Pulse, they're getting into the whole energy charging thing, they're doing a lot of renewables. Shell has been moving into the sustainable energy space in many different domains right now. And uh, and certainly Total has been buying up and putting in EV charges all over Europe. So, so some of them are definitely moving in the right direction for the energy transition. It's just when they're messaging around gas, I have some challenge with that because that's to me disingenuous and not focused on solving the real problem ahead of us, which is again, the carbon word. You know, this part about reparations is very interesting. I spoke to a gentleman out of India about a month ago and he said, you know, we're putting up 30 plus new coal plants in India over the next few years because, and one of the things he mentioned was, and I think you touched on it, the demand for air conditioning. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how these countries balance this growth with, or how they balance the growth with, you know, the transition to renewables. Yeah, this is a huge, I mean, the, the humanity's never faced anything quite like this. And it's the first time. We had the Industrial Revolution. We backed our way into that. That was never, that was individual companies and people making decisions and nation states to some degree, but never concerted. 
This is the first time ever humanity has collectively looked at the future and said, we, we need to avoid this thing that if we keep doing, we won't avoid and it's going to be really painful. And the challenge of pulling most of humanity and harnessing their activities and their investments and technologies to move in the right direction. We've never tried to do something like this. It's an enormous challenge and the complexity of it can't be underestimated with all those nuances like the one you just mentioned. Now, let's fast forward. Let's look at 2023. 2022 has been a a banger of a year. We mentioned the war at the top of the conversation. We have these inflationary pressures. Some people are talking about, you know, perhaps a recession, soft landing, hard landing. From an economist standpoint and your experience, what do you think in 2023? So I think the, you know, the economy is going to slow down a little bit, probably. I think what we'll find is that um, we'll still see some supply chain issues, excuse me. I think the costs of batteries and wind and solar probably flatline. They've increased over the last year or so. They probably those cost increases probably start to flatline. And one thing humans are really good at is trying to figure out what challenge they're dealing with and then sort of consolidating their positions and move forward again. So I think we will see growth in, in the renewable space. One of the things that I think is going to be most interesting is what happens on the grid edge, you know, the customer side of the equation where the distributed energy resources are located. We'll still have all kinds of wind development, solar development, more than half the solar will be batteries and utility scale stuff. But on the customer side of things for the grid edge, you're starting to see these really interesting mashups right now where these hybrids of convergence, where Sunrun and Ford, for example, are now creating an ecosystem with rooftop solar and a battery, and then that bi-directional Ford F-150 Lightning. VW, all of its vehicles next year are foundationally going to be vehicle grid capable. And they've talked in the past about managing terawatt hours of storage in mobile batteries and batteries on wheels, i.e. cars, right? GM just announced recently its tie-in with sun power and batteries as well. So you start to see these companies that now are neither fish nor fowl. They are more solution integrated solutions providers. And the solutions are still ugly. There's still a lot of pieces that have to be stitched together. But you you begin to see people selling ecosystems and solutions rather than individual technologies. And part of that will eventually involve a lot of managed EV charging to start with, and then ultimately vehicle to facility, offsetting consumption from the grid, and ultimately then vehicle to grid, with school buses being the first major stationary or mobile platforms, I should say, that are going to deliver power back to the grid. And I think in 2023, we're going to start to see the, the promise of B2G begin to become manifest by the, the Hyundai uh, 6, um, by the Hyundai Ioniq 6 is also foundationally a vehicle to grid capable. So I think that's going to be fascinating. I also think we're going to see EVs. We, we've hit 640,000 sales through the first 10 months of this year. That's what we did all last year. It's very similar numbers. I think EVs take off. Um, I think we're also though going <laughs> to start to run into so many DERs, those distributed energy resources on the grid edge, that we're, we're soon going to understand that there's a fundamental challenge ahead of us, which is that of maintaining situational awareness. And by that, I mean, Raj, on your bulk power system, you might have a couple hundred assets that are controlled by a SCADA, supervisory control and data acquisition system. You know, that um, 
um, that operating technology system that so you'd see what's going on with your transport, your substations and your generating plants. Now swivel that view over towards the grid edge, the low voltage utility, where in the old days it was a one way street and you had to know where your outages were and that sort of thing. But you didn't have this potential now where a place like PG&E, that utility has 5 million meters and someday could have four devices in every home, every meter essentially, interacting with the grid, either stopping consumption during certain periods of time or in fact delivering energy back to the grid from batteries, electric vehicles or so on. So what we used to manage in SCADA now becomes huge in the low voltage side. And it could be that the grid operator in the SCADA system is calling on 50 megawatts of DR or DER, distributed energy resources, out in the low voltage system. And if the distribution companies don't know that request was made and that certain things are going to shut off and other things are going to deliver power back to the grid, you create an opportunity for holy hell out there. And so we very soon are going to have to figure out grid architectures and understand, first of all, who's registered where. I I think we end up having some kind of a universal registry where every single device has kind of like an IP address that Mm -hmm. tells us what it is, how much it consumes, how much it can stop consuming, what sort of lead times it needs, and so on. And, and, And therefore, every device would be registered and known to the distribution utility, the particular aggregator, and the ISO as well so that the players who need to see it have situational awareness. And then we have to define the latencies, i.e. how fast does information need to move from point A to point B, and how does it become aggregated so that it doesn't overload the operators at various points in the system? They see only what they need to see wrapped up in the volumes they need to see it. But ultimately, Raj, we need to know the what, the where, the when, the how much, the how long, when it started, when it ended, and at what price for potentially hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions of devices in various utilities and probably tracking billions of transactions on an annual basis, becoming one of the larger data plays in the country and in the world. So I think that challenge becomes more manifest in 2023 as well. Right now we're doing utilities and IS grid operators with aggregators in these spoken hub models. When populations are small, you can do that and you don't have to lay out the bigger map. Once that population scales, those problems become inherently a lot clearer and then you have to really think about, well, what is the architecture that sits on top of that and informs it all? You know, it sounds like also an opportunity for security too. Oh, yeah, and cyber is critical, but also grid sec or grid security. You saw the two incidents last week in North Carolina at Duke where the you know, firearms were used that shot the transformers in the, mm-hmm. in the substations and they basically had power outages for five days to up to 40,000 people. Well, in researching that, it became clear that in the Pacific Northwest in the last two weeks in November, there were six incidents and some of them involved gunfire as well, attacking substations in Oregon and Washington Oregon. State. Right. And so, you know, grid security, both physical and cyber, that's that is one of the critical mm, soft underbellies of our civil society. And that's another one, in my opinion, we haven't spent nearly enough time trying to figure out how to harden our grid, both from a physical and a cyber perspective. It's sort of like like the Europeans with Gulf Stream uh, with Nord Stream one and two, just kind of crossing our fingers, knowing it's a problem, but hoping nothing happens. You know, the last thing I want to touch on is. 
I'd like to get your view on some of these supply chain issues regarding uh, precious metals, materials, et cetera, that we need for the turbines and panels, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, the one that's the most um, obviously critical right now is, first of all, there's the the um, silicon in the cells that are coming out of Xinjiang and the, you know, the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, right, mm-hmm. where um, developers, importers have to show that they're not uh, importing you know, cells made of forced labor. And then there's the issue of the anti-circumvention. The 80% of the imported panels coming out of Cambodia, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand. And then the Department of Commerce just doing its investigation. The preliminary preliminary findings are that there are four companies that have involved in different of those nations subsidizing the components from China and then assembling them in the modules and then shipping them to the States. Right. And, and so, you know, there's all that supply chain stuff going on, which with the IRA, you can onshore a bunch of manufacturing here and mitigate some of that, but you can't do it that fast. China, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, they, they didn't set up those supply chains in a couple of years. That's take, that takes a long time to integrate all those pieces in that ecosystem. You don't just snap your fingers and make that happen overnight. So I think those are challenges. And then obviously in batteries, when you do have a company like Contemporary Amperex Technologies manufacturing 34% of lithium ion batteries, 60% of cobalt coming out of the undemocratic Republic of Congo, 90% of that cobalt being processed in China, close to that of lithium being processed in China, even though it comes from the Altiplano in Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, and then the spodamine hard rock in places like Australia. Again, there's a uh, high level of concentration of processing in China. And I think part, again, of what the IRA is trying to do is to pry some of that away and democratize on a global basis more of that production, both in the United States and in so-called friendly nations. I think those issues come to the fore in 2023 and 2024. And by the way, nickel as well. Around 2025, 2026, according to Benchmark Global Minerals, class one nickel becomes a constraining factor in batteries. It takes about seven years to stand up a new mine. And Benchmark identified 300 gigafactories, battery gigafactories, lithium ion, either existing or advanced you know, construction or advanced planning stages. And only about 150 of them could be supplied with today's existing mines. And so there's going to be a lag in new mining development with its environmental issues inherent as well, which could also drive an inflationary pricing environment for some of those metals. What could impact that and help? BYD, for example, Chinese companies putting out a, batter, a car with a salt, sodium-based battery next year. Solid-state batteries will increase lithium, but there will be little need for cobalt. Lithium iron phosphates don't use cobalt. So I think there's going to be some chemical elasticity of new ways of manufacturing batteries that help to solve some of those supply chain constraints. None of the stuff is inherently fixed. We've seen, for example, nickel manganese cobalt chemistry move from a ratio of eight cobalt, one manganese, one nickel to, I'm sorry, one to one to one, one one nickel, one manganese, one cobalt to now eight nickel, one manganese, one cobalt, and even nine nickel, half manganese, half cobalt, and really push cobalt out of the system. So there is some flexibility in some of these chemistries and technologies, which I think will continue to watch migrate towards lower cost or less volatile, if you will, um, chemicals and minerals in the marketplace. 
Yeah, I think I saw a stat somewhere that said we're going to need over 300 new mines. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. And of course, recycling is going to be huge. And companies like Redwood, um, you know, the spinoff from from Tesla, from J.B. Straubel, um, getting, you know, standing up a billion dollars worth of um, recycling capability. And some of these technologies are, are good at getting 95% or more of the nickel and the cobalt and copper and other critical minerals out of the batteries once they're once they're used up so that that's going to become a critical part of this whole evolving ecosystem as well so it sounds like 2023 and the decade onwards is going to be extremely interesting oh every year just gets more fascinating and more nuanced and i can tell you about five years ago i could read an hour a day and stand up in front of a room and say let's play stump the chump see if you can ask me something you think i should know and let's see if you can catch me and now I won't play that game, but now I read about three hours a day. And I actually have 32 newsletters whose contents I scan on a daily basis. And actually last month, I, I just played this game like, I wonder how many headlines I peruse in the course of a day. And I counted over 140. Wow. Well, speaking of reading, how does it feel to be signing books at events this year? Yeah, it feels really funny. Like who, me? You know, there's, there's still something <laughs> that feels... Uh, What's the word I would Imposter say? Imposter syndrome. It feels pretentious, but it's also like today I got on LinkedIn, someone saying, could you please sign one for my dad saying this? And then my in-law works as an oil trader. Tell him to get on board with the energy transition, but do it in a nice way. And so I wrote a little you know, note to that guy. And then, and then he had another note for someone else. And so it's really fun sometimes to be engaged and know that someone's going to pick up the book and get into my head about, you know, reading these stories about places that I went and people that I met and sharing briefly, agreeing or disagreeing with my view of how it's all coming together. And there's something that's profoundly gratifying about that, um, which makes all the effort um, that was involved in that and all the uncertainty, it makes it all worthwhile. So just between me and you, no one else is listening, right? Um, yeah. Second book percolating? Oh, you know, I think about it sometimes. I've thought about something around carbon because that is ultimately the key issue of the day. But I look at um, what some other folks who, uh, the woman who wrote The Sixth Extinction, she's got a really, uh, Elizabeth Colbert, I think, she's got an interesting thing she's working on. I, I want to tread new ground, but I, if I were going to do a book on carbon, it would be similar to the one on electricity where I'd go out into the world and find people doing interesting things like carbon capture and storage and tell the story about what does this look like? What does it feel like on the ground? What does it mean to the reader and to society? And I have the thing hasn't quite grabbed me yet that says, oh, I must go. I look for something no one else is doing and I haven't yet sort of found that thing. In the meantime, I've been getting tons of speaking engagements, keynotes, educating, get to do a lot of work for Smart Electric Power Alliance, America, American Public Power Association and really knee, in, knee deep in the energy conversation. But if that next book thing grabs me, I'll probably fall prey to it and uh, see if I can you know, find the publisher and go. Because I do like trying to reach my arms around something complex and figure out how to simplify it first for me. And then if I can make it sensible to myself, then figure out how to simplify it for others around me. Well, Peter, I'm so glad you do that work. And again, real pleasure to have you back on. And I look forward to catching up with you again next time. Well, Raj, thanks. It's indeed always a great conversation that we have. And I appreciate the opportunity.
Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.